I want you to think for a moment about those constant threats, those constant threats that are out there in the world. Those things that will never go away until Jesus comes. I kind of thought about having you turn to your neighbor and share your answer, but then I thought I may never get you back. (laughs) Because the list is so long. What are those things that in this fallen world we're constantly threatened by to do us harm, to do us evil? There's all kinds of things we could think of. Certainly in the winter time, we're under constant threat of flu, right, of Uh, germs that will attack us and can lay us low at a moment's notice. There's the constant threat of terrorism, terroristic attacks really all over the world. There's the constant threat of severe weather, of uh, creation groaning, right? Volcanoes and earthquakes and those things will always be in the news until Jesus comes. We have threats while we're driving. There's relational threats. There's the threats of the stock market going into the uh, tank. I wonder what came to your mind. And I wonder more particularly, did false prophets cross your mind when I said a constant threat? Did the threat of false teachers and false preachers and false prophets rise up? In your mind, somewhere near the top of the list, the the truth is, for all of us, probably not. But I want to tell you something. It did and it does in the mind of Jesus. See, we tend to gravitate toward the physical, right? Toward the threats to our physical life and well-being. Toward the threats to our finances and our home and and the people we love. And that's natural and that's understandable. But when Jesus begins to talk about a threat, his primary concern is that of the spiritual nature. That which would cause us the most eternal consequences. When he thinks of a threat, he thinks of the threat of false prophets. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 and follow along as I read our sermon text this morning. The title is False Prophets. The text is Matthew seven fifteen to 20. As we continue now in the Sermon on the Mount, fast approaching the end, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. We are coming off of the text and off of the call from last week, if you were with us. Where we were called to enter the narrow gate and to walk the narrow path. And so the first question that comes to mind is what is the connection between the narrow path and now this warning about false prophets? And there is a strong connection indeed. Jesus is here warning. He warned his disciples about the constant threat of false prophets who would entice them to join them on the broad road to destruction. The reason the broad road to destruction has so many people on it is because of false prophets. 
and false teachers. Because as we saw last week, the world is, by and large, religious. Uh, People are hardwired to be spiritual beings and religious in nature. We all worship something or someone. And so that is the tie-in to the previous two verses. If we are going to stay on the straight and narrow path, we must beware of false prophets. If we are going to stay on the straight and narrow path, we must listen to true prophets. These two things are really essential. Let's define our terms. What is a false prophet? And I will use interchangeably today false teacher, false preacher, so forth. But what is a false prophet? It is a person who claims to speak for God, but does not. That's the simplest definition, right? A person who claims to speak for God or gods or a God, but actually, uh, in our context, speak for the true God, but actually does not. They would be religious looking often and spiritual sounding. But a false teacher leads people away from the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and away from sound doctrine. And they will do this. By their deeds and by their doctrine. They will do this by their beliefs and by their behavior. That's the means by which they will lead people onto the broad road. Or the means by which they will try to entice people on the narrow path to come off. By either their beliefs and or behavior. So defined, it is a person who claims to speak for the true God, but does not. Now, we also need a clarification as we just continue to introduce this text to us this morning. We need a clarification. Not every error constitutes false teaching. This is very important that we understand. We all, as Christians, are in process. We're all growing in illumination of the Word of God, right? We're all growing in our understanding of truth. We know so much more today than we did the day we became a Christian. And so we need to carefully understand that not all error, not all teaching that is wrong would be categorized as false teaching or to categorize that person as a false prophet, Here's what I mean. There are three categories of teaching. There is, first of all, orthodoxy. Ortho is where we, from the word straight, straight teaching, straight doctrine. Orthodoxy. That's the truth. That's the sound doctrine. That's the truth of the gospel. That's when it is right. That's when it is properly interpreted and properly applied. That would be called orthodoxy. The next category is heterodoxy. Heterodoxy is where it can still be Christian, but have some things that are wrong. It can still be the true gospel at its core, but can have some secondary doctrines that are in error. And certainly every Christian at some point has been heterodox about something. And we we didn't come into this having it all buttoned up and nailed down. We grow in our understanding. So there's orthodoxy. There's heterodoxy and then there's heresy. Heresy is the third category that would be the category of the false prophet and the false teacher. Heresy is when the gospel is wrong. Heresy is when the teaching itself will damn your soul to hell if you embrace it and believe it. It's not Christian. It's unchristian. It's anti-Christian. And so we need to understand these three categories when we evaluate teaching and teachers 
and that we don't draw too hard of a line and call someone that's heterodox a heretic. You understand? And so we need to be able to be discerning in that. As we've seen all along the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is really not saying anything radically new. He's taking the Old Testament and applying it and, and, and restating it in many cases. And such is the case here. This is not new with Jesus to beware of false prophets. It's not new of Jesus to warn us to recognize them by their fruits. We'll go all the way back to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. If you'll turn there with me to Deuteronomy 13. Uh, Just as we introduce this, I want you to see that Jesus again stands on the foundation of the Old Testament and builds his teaching on the entire word of God. He did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. He came to preach and teach them and apply them to the hearts of his disciples. Deuteronomy chapter 13. And this will give us a real flavor and a real feel for how God feels about false prophets. Certainly they're under the old covenant with the uh, with a threat of death if you practice this. Verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. Okay, so you've got a so-called prophet, a dreamer of dreams. They even come with signs and wonders, and they're trying to call the people of God away from the true God. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, God uses false teaching to test his people. God sovereignly reigns over false teaching to clarify the truth in the church among the true sheep and to drive away and expose the wolves and to test us. Verse 4, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. I'm going to stop there. The the passage actually continues, but I think you got the the gist of it. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, verse 22, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Apparently, the Apostle John was listening, perhaps, on the hillside that day at the Sermon on the Mount. One more verse all the way to 1 John chapter 4, to nearly the end of our Bibles. And by the way, we could give endless examples of this, right? Of the warnings throughout Scripture about false teachers. It literally runs cover to cover. I'm just giving you a very small sample, but here's one last one. 1 John 4, 1 to 3. 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So back to Matthew 7, and who does Jesus specifically have in mind as he speaks these words of warning? Beware of the false prophets. You'll notice it's plural. There's a company of them. There's a plethora of them. They're all varieties, brands, and shapes, and sizes. Beware of the false prophets. Who did Jesus have in mind? Well, the the first answer to that question is the setting of Jesus. There in the first century, as he's teaching his gathered disciples, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, in the context of Jesus having come to earth as the Messiah, the first answer to who is he talking about No surprise, the scribes and the Pharisees. He is talking about those hypocrites who would say one thing and live another way. Those hypocrites who put burdens on the people that they could not keep. Those people that held to a doctrine of legalism and lived a life of license. This describes the the scribes and the Pharisees. Certainly, this is who Jesus had in mind. They must beware of them. They had great influence and great power in his day. They were leading people away from the true God and the gospel. They were leading people away into hell. Jesus said that himself. He said that the scribes and Pharisees made people twice as much a son of hell as they were themselves. Their teaching was poison. He called it leaven. It spread it throughout the the kingdom and it destroyed souls. It damned people to hell. He's warning them to beware of these hypocritical men who strutted around in their robes and their phylacteries, who claimed a great power over the people, but were actually wolves in sheep's clothing. But there's another answer to this question, because not only are these the words of Jesus, but these are the words of Matthew. And so we go to the second answer, and you do this with all the gospel teaching of Jesus. There's now the second audience, and it's Matthew's audience, right? Matthew is writing about 50 A.D. to first century Christians, primarily Jewish Christians. And he's writing these words and including these words in his gospel because they're still relevant and still needed. Who did Matthew then have in mind by the false prophets? The best explanation is this. These professing Christian, listen, itinerant preachers, traveling preachers, who would go around to the various congregations and they were spreading a false gospel of license and anti-Nominianism. No law Christianity. That's who Matthew has in mind. That is the context of the Sermon on the Mount and one of the themes of Matthew's gospel. And that is there is a true righteousness that the children of God demonstrate by their lives, right? We've talked about that. He's speaking then of these Men who would come along and and claim to be speaking for God, claim to be Christians, claim to be preaching the gospel, but their lifestyle was a lifestyle of license and their gospel was interwoven with antinomianism. That the law of God, the moral law of God has no relevance and no bearing on our life as Christians. 
That is a false prophet or a false teacher. In fact, and we'll get to this next week, but they may. Uh, let me let me show you why I'm, I'm going down this path. Look at verse 23. Now, some people connect verse 23 to our passage. Some separate it. We're going to separate them. But look at verse 23 in this great declaration to the lost. Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. You who are antinomian. You who are anti-law. You get away from me, you who practice lawlessness. And it's very possible that that these people who were spreading this false gospel also had charismatic tendencies. It's very possible and most likely because of 21 to 23 that they were charismatic enthusiasts or charismatic fanatics, we might say. Because they claim their charismatic gifts in verses 21 and 22 as that which should get them entrance into heaven. But Jesus says, no, these charismatic gifts and the use of these gifts, even the working of miracles, just like we saw in Deuteronomy, right? The false prophets work signs and wonders. Even where there is the working of miracles that doesn't get you into heaven, what matters is do you know Jesus He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you see. So who does Matthew have in mind? And this lasts really throughout the entire church age. He has in mind cheap grace libertarians. He has in mind people who may even claim Paul as their patron. They may even claim Paul and his free gospel of free grace as their license to, to, to live in sin without repentance. And they will spread that error. They will spread that heresy. It is a heresy of a non-lordship gospel. It is a heresy if you do not have to repent to become a Christian, even though Jesus said it and John the Baptist said it and Paul said it and Peter said it and the Bible says it throughout. They will just conveniently redefine repentance or conveniently cut that out and say, no, all you have to do is give mental assent to the gospel and you're saved. That is a false gospel. If we do not respond in the way that God has commanded, and Acts 20 says God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere to repent. If we don't respond in the way God has commanded, then we have not responded to the gospel. And we are not proclaiming the true gospel. And this is why churches are filled with unconverted people. So we, this is very relevant, obviously. And it's very important that we understand that these false prophets have been and will continue to be prevalent until Jesus comes. Well, who are they today? Who are they today? We looked at the time of Jesus and the time of Matthew. Now let's jump ahead 21 centuries to today. I'm going to put them in two broad categories. It's the crowd who says you can be saved by keeping the law. And it's the crowd who says the law has no application to your life. These two broad categories, one is legalism, the other is license. This would include preachers, of course, and teachers whose life, whose moral life is a mess, a train wreck, whose walk with Christ is non-existent. It would include those preachers who love money and fame, attention and power, regardless of the size of their audience or congregation they're following. It would include preachers and teachers who don't really believe the Bible, who do not really believe in the inerrancy, infallibility, sufficiency, authority of Scripture. Of those who think we can edit Scripture, 
that we can play games with Scripture and twist it and, and, and make it say whatever we want to say. Certainly that is the common denominator, right, of all false prophets and all false teachers. The examples are endless. They're all around us every day. They're on the airwaves. They're on the Internet. They're on TV. They're on the radio. They're writing books. They're pastoring churches. They're all around us everywhere. They're endless. And we need to be adequately warned and equipped by God's word. So here's your outline. Here's the big idea. Jesus uses two illustrations to teach us about false prophets. The master teacher, right? He hardly says a word that it's not an illustration. Two illustrations to teach us, his followers, about false teachers. Illustration number one is to warn us. Illustration number two is to comfort us. Illustration number one, verse 15, they are deadly wolves in sheep's clothing. Look at verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you, itinerant Christian preachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing. The word for clothing there speaks of the outer garment, not the inner tunic. It speaks of the outer robe. They come to you in the outer robe of appearing like a sheep, but inwardly, on the inside, they don't appear as something on the inside. They are something. You see this distinction? The outside is an appearance. The inside is the reality. They are ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves. Hungry, dangerous, deadly. So the first illustration is to warn us that these people are deadly wolves in sheep's clothing. They come in disguise, in other words. They're like Satan who disguises himself as what? An angel of light. Satan describes himself, describes, (laughs) he disguises himself, there it is, as an angel of light. My good friend John Standridge, who's going to be at our men's retreat, he loves this this little phrase. He says, the devil comes to us, he's not going to look like Joel Osteen. (laughs) I mean, he's not going to look like Obama. Uh, uh, You know who I'm talking about, not Obama. (laughs) Bin Laden. Oh, I get there. Sorry. Let's rewind. Edit that out. Clip that out. The devil comes to you. He's not going to look like Osama bin Laden. He's going to look like Joel Osteen. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Hmm. He will come to us in the outer robe of the innocent lamb. The gentle and harmless sheep. He will try to look and sound Christian. And what they try to do is project a familiarity with you. They want to give you the vibe that they are one of us. That we're all on the same team. And we should embrace one another. That's the vibe they want to give out. This Accelerated familiarity, vocabulary, and lingo. But on the inside, they are hungry wolves. They are feeding on souls. They are feeding on bank accounts. And often, they are feeding on the pleasures of women. So much of life goes back to sex and money. And so it is with false prophets. 
Behind the charade of their innocence, of their lamb-like appearance, behind that charade is an evil person with evil intent. And so we are to be warned, the text says. This is a present active imperative. It is a command of continuous action. Beware, beware, beware. Be on guard, be on watch, take heed. They're not going to go away. You must be constantly vigilant because the threat is constant. The threat is constant. My purpose this morning is to teach the teaching of Jesus and to equip you to beware, to equip you to be on guard. And so I want to give you 10 ways fairly quickly now, 10 ways to watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. We'll call this the top 10. <laughs> Number one, jump in to the Herman who class. Herman who is a class about hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. They just had week two. You can jump in. There will be room for you. It's in the fellowship hall. And this is a class designed to help you learn how to read and study the Bible accurately. If you feel shaky on that, if you haven't read a book on hermeneutics, if you haven't had a class on hermeneutics and you're not in Sunday school, you're not already committed somewhere else. You need to be in the fellowship hall at nine o'clock on Sunday mornings. This is probably the number one is, is number one on my list because it's probably the most important. You will be able to sniff out bad teaching and see counterfeits because you know how to properly interpret and read the Bible. And so come to this class for the next 14 weeks. You've only missed two weeks for the next 14 weeks and learn. It's an excellent course. I've read through all of the material. I was amazed at how much is packed in to this small handout. Uh, having read several books on the subject, uh, the, 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 the man who put all of this together did a masterful job. Come to Herman Hu and learn about the art and science of interpreting the Bible. Number two, and these all work together. They all tie in with each other. You need to read the whole Bible. No excuses. You know how to read. You got a Bible. You do have the time. Christians need to be reading the whole Bible if you want to be a whole Christian. You need to read this book cover to cover. You need to read this book in its context. And as you read this book cover to cover on a regular basis, ongoing basis, ask these kinds of questions about everything that you hear from every teacher or every preacher you listen to. Does this square with all of Scripture? Now, you can't even ask that question or attempt to answer it unless you're reading all of Scripture. Does this square with the whole counsel of God? Do not ask, does it square with psychology? Do not ask, does it square with my human opinion? Don't ask, does it square with how I was brought up? Does it square with tradition? Does it square with my personal opinion? All of those things, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, are irrelevant. Completely and totally some of those things can be good and true and praise God for them. But they have no bearing on what I am hearing. Is this something that squares with the whole Bible? We need to read the whole Bible and then compare everything that we are exposed to, to all of Scripture properly interpreted, not cherry picking isolated verses out of context to build our case. That's called proof texting. Well, there's good proof texting and then there's bad proof texting. 
But what often happens, and every false teacher does it at some point, they cherry pick verses to build their case. And they just go into the Bible randomly, open here, here's a verse, I pull this out of context, and they make it say something it never was intended to say, not even remotely close. And this is why we've got to read Scripture in chunks and then dig, dig deep into the details. Number three on this list of top ten ways to be on guard for false prophets. Number three, spend more time reading the whole Bible than other Christian books. I'm going to say more about books in a few minutes, but I think in the history of the church that books have probably been the most dangerous threat to the body of Christ. Sure, a one-time sermon is a threat, and sure, there's stuff on videos and there's recordings, but if you just look at the history of the church and what God has so profoundly used in the life of his people or profoundly um, oversaw from a sense of, of Satan using it, it would be books. They just live on and they can just spread uh, in in an exponential way. My challenge to you is to spend more time reading your Bible than other Christian books. I didn't say don't read other Christian books. I didn't say throw them all out. That would be ridiculous. That would be unwise. What I'm saying is make the main thing the main thing. And then all of these other books of which there are no end. There's there's at least 50 books right now that I wish I had time to sit down and read. There's no doubt. I'm sure I'm sure the number's 500. There is no end. I want this I want this book to be my dominant place of reading. I want these others to be supplemental and complemental, complementary. All right, that's number three. Number four. Number four. Use the filter of our statement of faith and our doctrinal statement. For your protection. We have labored many, 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 many years. And they're not unique to Kerrville Bible Church Vanity Stretch. Our statement of faith and our doctrinal statement. We certainly believe is orthodoxy. Right? If, it, if we didn't, we'd change it. <laughs> and so I want to commend those two documents to you as a church member. Our statement of faith is one page. It's the essentials of the Christian faith. It's the fundamentals of the faith. Of the faith. It's those things we say we will not negotiate over. And then our doctrinal statement is about five or six pages, and it goes into more details on some areas that we would have disagreement with other Christians on. We're saying on our statement of faith, we shouldn't have any disagreement on any of these with any other Christian. We're saying in our doctrinal statement, these are some of our distinctives. I commend both of these to you as a filter for what you hear, for what you read, as a way to just test it against something else. Number five is similar. Not only do you need this filter of a shorter statement of faith and doctrinal statement, but you also need a framework for your Christian belief. And that comes from systematic theology. And so I would commend to you to get several good systematic theologies. They're generally going to be about a thousand pages. And that's an introduction. (laughs) And there are many good ones out there. I'm not going to commend any one to you this morning. But they provide for us a framework for our belief system. And this is one of those kind of which comes first, chicken or the egg, or, you know, we kind of chasing our tail. So as I read systematic theology, I got to compare it to the Word of God. And as I read the Word of God, I kind of see the, how does this fit into my overall framework. And it, and it kind of goes back and forth that way, you understand. And so systematic theology is then tightened and corrected and made more clear as you move along. But it, be, it becomes the framework, and then I have a filter of a simple statement of faith, doctrinal statement. Number six. Turn off TBN. 
Now, if you don't know what that is, good. If you do, you understand why I say turn it off. For the one or two good things that might come across TBN, there's about 20 bad. It's at best heterodoxy and often heresy. Block it, turn it off, skip it. That's number six. Number seven, be extra cautious of Internet preachers who are not attached to a church. Be extra cautious of Internet preachers and teachers and bloggers who are not attached to a church. Who knows these people? Who watches these people? Who can discern whether they're good trees bearing good fruit or bad trees bearing bad fruit? Who's holding them accountable? Who's in their life? Who vouches for them? Hey, a YouTube channel is not a vouch. <laughs> a blog, a book, an article, a following, all, none of that matters. Be very, very cautious. Number eight, be extremely suspicious of charismatic claims. And people always asking for money. And I put these together because they're often the same group. Be extremely suspicious of charismatic health, wealth, prosperity claims, signs and wonders claims, miracle claims. Be very, very suspicious. Doubt it from beginning to end. And doubt those who are constantly asking you for money. And you mark my words, that is often the same crowd. In fact, it is those claims that give credence to the request for the money. Those claims are there to say, see how God is blessing this ministry? See how God is using this ministry? All of these extraordinary, amazing claims, churches planted and souls saved and miracles performed. Huh, that's where we're going next week. All of these audacious claims. And oh, by the way, send in some money because we need your support. And look how God is blessing. If you'll bless us, God will bless you. See, these things just work. They work hand in glove and all of it appeals to the flesh. That's number eight. Number nine. I said I'd talk about books, so let's talk about them for a moment. Be on guard against what I will call dangerous, mega popular Christian books. In fact, in my mind, the more popular they are, the more dangerous they often are. What I will call dangerous, mega popular Christian books. For example, the prayer of Jabez, Jesus calling and heaven is for real have all sold over 10 million copies. The shack over 20 million copies. Let's go back a few decades. Norman Vincent Peale and his influence is still with us today. The power of positive thinking has sold over 20 million copies and still has tremendous influence all through evangelicalism today. Purpose Driven Life, over 30 million copies. I would call these dangerous, mega popular Christian books. Be on guard. In fact, the <laughs> this is interesting. CBN. They're kind of the cousin to TBN. CBN.com had an article titled, uh, The Ten Christian Bestsellers That You Should Own. Here were three of the ten. Number one, number one, 
Oh my goodness, let this sink in. Ten Christian bestsellers you should own. Number one, they didn't put Pilgrim's Progress. They put Jesus Calling. That's number one. Number two, Wild at Heart. Number eight, 90 Minutes in Heaven. What the title should have been is seven books you might like and three you should throw away. Beware of dangerous, mega popular Christian books. Why are they mega popular? Because unbelievers are buying them. And unbelievers are eating them up. And unbelievers love them. And unbelievers are giving them to their friends. A a, a Christian book to become mega popular has to be embraced by the culture at large. It has to be embraced to sell in the millions. That's the only way it's possible in many, many cases. Finally, number 10 would be this. Beware of ministers that leave you more impressed with them than with God. More impressed with them than with God's word. Beware, beware, beware. That's a dual beware. Beware of them just in general. If they if they're more about entertaining than educating. If they're more about telling you what your flesh wants to hear than what you need to hear. If it's more about making you feel good about yourself, making you versus making you feel better about Jesus. Right. So you got to be aware of them. But on the other side, in your own heart, beware of where you will elevate people in your own heart. When you're more impressed with that person than with God, when they're done talking to you, just guard your heart to that celebrity affinity that we have inbred in us to want to elevate someone beyond their proper station because they wow us in some way. Or maybe we want to be like them. I don't know. Well, that's the first illustration. It is there to warn us. I hope you have been uh, thoroughly uh, warned this morning. Let's move to the second illustration. And it's here to comfort us. This is really verses 16 to 20. It's here for our comfort because there's no commands here. These are statements of fact. This is just the reality of the matter. He doesn't say you, you will have to... Go examine their fruit to know them. He just simply says, you will know them by their fruits. And at that point, you know, in verse 15, we're a little bit stressed out. Verse 15, we're a little bit on edge. And now in 16 to 20, we can go, oh, I can relax. I can relax because they're going to be exposed. It's going to be obvious. And so I take comfort in that. Well, here's the second illustration. They are dead trees known by their bad fruit. They are dead trees known by their bad fruit. Now, let me show you a couple of things about this text that's interesting. This is called an inclusio. You'll look at verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Look at verse 20. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Identical words. And so that puts bookends. Inclusio is a fancy grammatical word. You might learn about it in Herman Who. I don't know if you will or not. But here, we'll just call them bookends. And they, and they set the rest of this passage apart. But this passage has also got what's called a chiastic structure. And let me show that to you. So the first level of it is you will know them by their fruits, 16 and 20. And then the next two things that go together are the rest of verse 16. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? And verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those go together as a bracket, you see. It's talking about bad trees that will be thrown in the fire. 
And then the next level is verses 17 and 18, which form another bracket and get to the heart of the passage. So an inclusio with chiastic structure. And the reason we can be comforted is at some point, false prophets, false teachers will be recognized because of their bad deeds and or their bad doctrine. Either their bad behavior will give them away or their bad beliefs will eventually come to the surface. And the word Jesus uses here when he says you will know it's future, but it has the idea of it could be right now or any point in the future. It could be today or next week or next month or 10 years from now. But at some point, eventually, their true colors are going to be seen. And the wolf in sheep's clothing is going to be exposed. And this we can be comforted by. They're not going to get away with it forever. They're going to be brought into the light of day. They will eventually be exposed like Judas was eventually exposed. Judas was a false prophet. Judas was a false teacher. He was hiding out among the twelve. Every gospel writer, every time they mention him, says he's the one that would betray Jesus because they were so blown away that he was the one who betrayed Jesus. They just couldn't get over the fact that they were with this man for three years closely and didn't know he was a traitor. He was eventually exposed If you're looking at verses 17 and 18, it gets to the heart of this passage. The bad tree, the word there really is worthless or diseased, a decayed tree, a rotten tree. This tree is corrupt, it's it's dead and decaying and, 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 and therefore it has no ability whatsoever to produce good fruit. It can only produce bad fruit, evil fruit, morally corrupt fruit, degenerate fruit. That's all the bad tree can do. And the good tree is just the opposite. You see, if you're looking at verse 17 and 18, you see this. There is an inevitability to the rotten fruit and an impossibility of good fruit. And I just gave you a definition of total depravity. Here is a great proof text, a legitimate proof text for total depravity. The bad tree bears bad fruit. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Completely impossible because a bad tree is dead and decaying and corrupt to its core. And as such, since they're bad trees, since they're thorn bushes, since they're thistles, they're good for nothing but what? Fire. That's why they're headed to fiery judgment, to a day of reckoning, to a day of eventually full exposure. Known by their fruits, recognized by their fruits. Verse 19, every tree, he's referring to the bad trees that do not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the fire of eternal judgment. In fact, as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus' most fiery anger was not reserved for the promiscuous prostitutes. It was not reserved for the traitorous tax collectors, was it? His most fiery anger was reserved for the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those false priests who were leading people astray. If you wanted to... You know, push his buttons. If you wanted to see what really makes Jesus angry, angry enough to turn over tables in the temple in a rage of righteous indignation, it was the false teachers leading his people astray. 
And we can be comforted because we know they're out there and we know the damage they've done. And in many cases, they did damage to us personally or they've done damage or are doing damage to people we know and love. And they can really make us mad. It can really make us upset. And we can see these words of 16 to 20. And we can come away with a comfort. We can come away relaxed. We can know that bad trees will eventually be dealt with. We don't have to cut them down and burn them at the stake. God will. This is very important because in the history of the church, certain Christians thought it was their job to cut people down and burn them at the stake. Right? Because they were heretics. And they kind of reverted back to the Old Testament and said, well, God said to kill them in the Old Testament, so we're going to kill them. And then back in those days, you had the power of the state behind that. Well, we don't need to go down that path. They're the blind leading the blind. Leave them alone, Jesus says. Be aware. Be warned. But leave them alone. You don't have to cut them down and burn them at the stake. God's going to take care of it. So, beloved, the call this morning is to walk the narrow path by ignoring and tuning out the siren voices of the false prophets who would call you off of the narrow path. And simultaneously by listening to those voices from good trees bearing good fruit. This is the call. Let's pray. God of heaven, help us to have the discernment imparted by the word of God and the spirit of God. To clearly see who is a false prophet, false teacher. To clearly see those wolves in sheep's clothing. Help us to be on guard. And yet, Lord, help us not to become overly critical or overbearing or harsh. Help us not to become cliquish or uh, holier than thou or in some way uh, removed from the rest of the body of Christ. Lord, help us to remember these three categories of orthodoxy, heterodoxy, and heresy and to draw the lines in the right places and to embrace those Christians and Christian teaching that truly are and to reject and ignore those that uh, that aren't. But you are the chief shepherd. Uh, you are the one who guards us. You are the one who protects us. We pray you protect this church from wolves in sheep's clothing. We pray you protect this church from false teachers who might slip in unnoticed. We pray that you put a guard and a hedge of thorns around us and that the word of God preached and taught in every way here would gather and collect the elect and drive away the wolves. May the wolves find nothing here that satisfies them. May the wolves find nothing here that uh, attracts them. May they be bored to tears. May uh, May they feel like there's nothing here for them. And Lord, we also thank you today as I close that you can take a bad tree and change it to a good tree. You have the power to change the very nature of a man or woman. You have the power to transform them from the inside so that which was decayed and dead can be alive. And as we saw in Psalm 1, bear much fruit. We thank you for this power you have in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.